finally got to see Moneyball and I actually took my daughter Emma to see it yesterday too to see it for a second time I really wanted to see it with an audience a normal quote-unquote normal audience you know I didn't want to see it with a screener crowd I wanted to see what regular people thought of it so I started to go over for for the uh, regular people well it was weird because it was Saturday night in Van Nuys and I was almost at eight o'clock show it was like a 750 show so I thought oh it's going to be packed we better get there early it wasn't packed. The theater itself wasn't packed, which means nobody was really going to the movies. Um, it wasn't like how it would be in the summer, for instance. But it was, you know, it was it was an older crowd. It was like fifty, age fifty and above. There weren't many kids or teen tweens. I don't think it's a teenager movie at all. It's not certainly not a young twenties movie. It's a it's an older person's film. But they were much more muted than they were at the screener. Um, when I saw it at the screening, everybody was with it every minute of the way. They were laughing at everything, you know, even Spike Jones, mm-hmm. and because they knew who Spike Jones was. But these guys wouldn't have known who Spike Jones was. Well, they kind of, you know, some of it. Um, but what, what surprised me about it was that the second time through, I realized how slow it is. Like, it's slow movie. It's not like a fast social mm-hmm. network kind of thing. It's slow. And so anybody going in thinking it's going to be social network is going to be disappointed. But if they stay with it and they, you know, and they connect with that character, then they're you're going to hear them reacting, and they did like toward the end, um, when there's that one moment where he watches the video, you know, you could just hear the crowd reacting, and when it was mm, over, the video of uh, which video that you watching? I don't want to say because it's a spoiler, oh, okay. but it's toward the oh, okay, end, right. you know, where okay. he says you got to see this video. Mm. And oh, okay, then, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know what you mean. Mm. And so then there, um, when I, the movie was over, we got up, and Emma Emma was kind of bored by it. Like, it, she, it didn't really strike her as, you know, she didn't really understand it very well. Mm. Um, so she didn't really get into it too much. And she couldn't really see because she didn't have her contacts and stuff. So, oh. But at the end, when we got She's up and left... Not, is she a baseball fan at all? Does she? No, she doesn't even know the game at all. Mm-hmm. So we got up to leave, and I noticed that everybody was still sitting in their seats and looking up at the screen, which never happens. Usually in those right. kind of movies, people get up right away, but they were all sitting watching, so I could tell that they were moved by it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't have the same reaction that I saw it with the screener crowd, for sure. Like, they didn't applaud at the end or anything like that. What type of people were at the screener crowd? What, what, um, it, a lot of movie writers, I'm sure, but uh, what, who, who fills those theaters during those screeners? screenings well it wasn't a typical snap. Is, it, is it studio people are there studio are there yeah. um, people who worked on the movie there yeah it was a big screening it was full it was like leonard malton was there and you know the la times mm. guys were there plus a lot of people i didn't know um it was a big kind of a mixed crowd usually when you go to screenings of early movies like chris tapley for instance saw moneyball with about five people at a <clears throat> at sony and when i uh-huh. saw like um 
Vera Farmiga's movie, it was like, you know, 20 of us in a tiny screening room at Sony. That's a whole different mm-hmm. scene than, than a bunch of people shoved into the Grove. The Grove is like our big mall here. You know what the Grove is, right, Ryan? You, have you ever heard of the Grove? It's like mm, a, not really, no, but I can imagine. Yeah, so I, know, but I know the difference between a, you know, a theater-type venue and a, and a studio lot venue because exactly. I was lucky enough to go to studio lot screenings a couple of times. And so I, can, I know the difference. It's really exclusive VIP, mm-hmm. small, you know, and, and, then, and they're, they're, po- they're mostly poker-faced. Like, they don't feel the need to mm-hmm. impress. Like, at Telluride, for instance, when you sit down in a screening, it's packed, and they have filmmakers there and talent there, and they say something ahead mm-hmm. of time. So the crowd always feels like they have to be with the movie mm-hmm. and cla- like they always clap when the person's name comes up at the end because that person's there in the screening uh-huh. right. but um, with this Moneyball screening it was just full of people but you could tell that these were people that were really with the movie like they were with it every frame mm-hmm. of the way and they clapped at the end and they loved it you know this other crowd was more a muted reception but I could tell that they also were moved by it but the second time I saw it I thought you know what this isn't going to be like Bull Durham. This is going to be more like The Insider. It's going to be a slow burn. People are going to discover it as years go on, and they're going to look back on it, and they're going to say, wow, what a great movie that was. You know, But it's not going to be something that gets people right away and that they rush back and see over and over again. It's not going to be The Social Network. You know, It's not that movie. That's a great comparison to The Insider, because it, and it really is it's because it's so much about the... The behind the scenes and the and it's not it's not what happens on the field so much as it is what happens in the locker room and in in the in the back offices. Right. Um, and so you don't you don't have that you don't have the sports um, especially because of the of the path that that the sports um, um, plot takes. It's not really so much of a happy ending. You know, it's not really no. uplifting at the end as much as a lot of sports movies always are. Right. Like I said, you know? Jeff, Jeff was telling me that um, that. Uh, a lot of people are disappointed because they don't win the World Series. It's not mm-hmm. a spoiler mm-hmm. because this is a fact. I mean, it's the true story sure. of the history. Yeah. This is what uh-huh. happened. And, in fact, Billy Beans, yeah. the way Billy Bean changed the game is that eventually the big teams adopted his system, and then they started winning because they had the more money anyway, so it came down to money, mm-hmm. and it came down to this yeah. formula. And so Billy Bean is just destined to always be a loser, which, again, is one of the beautiful things about his character. You know, I think so too. I mean, I, they, I really love the song at the end. That they, uh, I, again, I, I don't want to mention any specifics, but but it but it touches, you know, along the same lines. It's but it's a very unusual thing to have to have come up as the as in the closing credits song, you know. Oh God, I know. Well, I was singing it yeah. on our other podcast, so you know, I I hope that it's not mm-hmm. a spoiler to say. No, I don't think but, so because I mean it's in the middle of the movie too. But it was just it's a it's a it's a it's just a shock to hear that. You know, you wouldn't. That's the last thing that I, that probably a lot of people expect to hear. It's such a beautiful and thing, also, though. It just made me smile both times I saw it. You know. Mm-hmm. It's the sweetest way to end a movie. I mean, that's the one thing you got to do with mm. a movie is you got to end it well, and you got to send people out mm. on the street. You know, like, wow, that was a really nice way to end that. You know, and I think now, it is does. that an original song that was written for the movie? No, yeah. actually, unfortunately, mm. I found out that the song was written and and um, produced and released after that time in history. So, but but Bennett Miller yeah. knew oh. that, and he went ahead and, and put it in there anyway. But mm-hmm. people who know that song will know that it came out after the mm-hmm. 2002 winning streak. The first the time Olympics. I heard it in the movie, I almost thought that it was a song that the girl that the daughter had written herself. It, I, either I wasn't really paying close attention, or I just got that impression that it was something that she had written. It almost seemed like it might be because it was so. It was such a, a simple. Uh, 
pure thing, you know, mm -hmm. like something a girl might write. But then I realized at the end that it probably wasn't that that. Uh, that's why I asked if it was going to be, you know, I guess I'm asking about it, if it's going to be able to be eligible for the movie, but I guess no, probably not that. Yeah. It won't be, but, um, so what did yeah. you think, Craig? I went into it with a lot of baggage because I already knew how the story came out and I was trying to figure out how they were going to make a compelling movie about a team who doesn't win the World Series. Mm -hmm. Um and I'm not convinced that they successfully pulled it off. They tried to do a little narrative jujitsu by making it more about Brad Pitt's character and his relationship with his daughter, and that was all fine, but it wasn't until the very, very, very last scene that I felt really emotionally engaged because it was the only scene that really had an impact on me. Hmm. Um, the, the rest of it, um, it the, the baseball stuff, just kind of felt like it was filling time to me, and it was filling it very slowly over the course of over two hours and it just um, a knowing how it how it turns out I mean they tried to make a big deal out of their 20 game winning streak which in the moment was kind of exciting but when you think about it in the big picture it doesn't really mean anything and even Billy Bean said twice in the movie if you don't win the last game it doesn't mean anything and mm -hmm. It, and that's true, although, like I said, they tried to make it more about the daughter, and that became emotionally affecting. But it, it, it just never quite added up to me. And I don't think, I don't think regular audiences who are expecting um, a feel-good underdog story are going to really embrace this one. It is an underdog story, though, but it's Billy Bean's underdog story. It's not necessarily the Oakland A's. Which makes it different than the typical baseball movie. It's not about like a team overcoming. It's, it is about celebrating losing and the art of losing. I think and the art of losing the game yeah. and just enjoying the show, as the song says. You know, that's what I saw. Well, that's it interesting as. what the Craig says though about the fact that he knew where it was going. So and since he knew that it was not really going in the direction it was going to be uplifting, that it, that it, it seemed like that the that the that the things like the twenty game uh, winning streak were were just filler that wasn't going to, that was almost like a red herring that was taking you down the path that wasn't going to lead to a, to a happy destination. And I would have thought that people who know more about baseball and know more about the actual circumstances would enjoy the movie more. But see, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know any, to me, I was all, it was all brand new to me and, and it was all exciting. I, and I was much more interested in it than I ever imagined that I would be. Same I here. thought it was going to be, in spite of the great reviews, I thought it was going to be a really a slog for me to sit through a movie about baseball because I just have really never been interested. But I think it really been, it helped me enjoy it more that I didn't know anything because it made all, all of the exposition something I had to pay attention to. I had, it, and it, it did a really great job of teaching you everything you needed to know from, for someone who didn't know anything. And, yeah. But maybe someone who already knows all that stuff, it maybe is a little more you know, uh, boring. Apparently. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I mean, people are expecting that. Craig's right. I mean, and, and that's going to lead to a lot of um, disappointed um, moviegoers, especially since the critics are so all over it. But that's what I mean, like, about it being like The Insider. The Insider was the same kind of thing, because I'm old enough to remember when that movie came out. And that's what I mean, like, people rediscover it over time when the dust settles and the real movie emerges, not the movie that's being sold by marketers, not the movie that's being lauded mm -hmm. by critics, not the movie that's going to maybe be nominated for Oscars, but the actual movie itself, which I think they did it. Yeah. I think this is why I liked it, because it wasn't what I expected it to be. 
I thought it was going to be, mm-hmm. you know, just this dumb movie about, you know, I didn't even know the story, but I just thought it was going to be some dumb baseball movie. I had no idea it was going to be such a subtle character study of a guy. And Me about either. these, and that's what really made it special that it was because I would have the more the less baseball that was in this movie for me the better as, as as many as few minutes of baseball on the field that you can because you can manage to get by without yeah. that that suited me just fine. But I did feel the slowness of it the second time, which I did not feel at all the first time. But the second time I was watching mm-hmm. it, I felt I didn't feel it in terms of me, but I felt it in terms of other people. Like I know my daughter was sitting next to me yawning and falling asleep, and I was thinking, mm-hmm. hmm. Well, it's long. It's a long movie. It's, yeah. it's what two hours and ten minutes long. Uh, I don't, but I really don't know what 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 I would trim. That's always a question. I ask myself when I think a movie may be too long, is like, what would I cut out? And I can't think of anything. I can't think what where you would tighten it up. It was Greg, suggested you, to me last night that they should have cut out the stuff with Robin Wright, and I, I think I agree. Um, at first, mm-hmm. I disagreed because I thought all of his personal stuff was the stuff that really mattered. Mm-hmm. But his personal yeah. stuff that mattered was all with his daughter. It really had nothing to do with his ex-wife mm, or no. her new husband, Spike Jones, or any of that. It just... Um, uh, that seemed like they were. I'm not sure where they were going with that. Exactly. Oh, I'll tell you where they were going with it. Um, they, okay. the uh, original draft, Steve's when Steve's alien. The first thing was all written by um, uh, um, Stan Chervin. He, he's the one who originally wrote the screenplay. And then when it was taken over by Steven's alien, um, he turned Brad Pitt's character, who was then George Clooney's character, into a womanizer. And he's been picking up all these women and stuff. And, and as a way of dealing with this hot, beautiful man on screen, you know, you can't put mm. George Clooney and Brad Pitt in a movie and not have, and not deal about the woman thing. You just can't because it's, it's not realistic. Right. And so uh-huh. the second draft had Brad Pitt's character just getting a phone number of some girl, but then eventually they just cut out all that stuff, which I think was smart to do. But by bringing in the wife in, they show that there's, you know, they do tell that story a little bit. They say, okay, he's had a past. It didn't work out. Now he's focusing on his daughter and I think and that he has that, a wife that would be appropriate to him too. He has a wife that's hot enough to you can, exactly. you can imagine that they, yeah, that that worked. Yeah, know, like David they, Justice was together. married to Halle Berry, you know, and so mm-hmm. you you mm-hmm. have to imagine he had this hot wife. It didn't work out, you know. But mm-hmm. it's like you can't leave that unanswered if you're looking at a guy like Brad Pitt. You know, you just can't because he's too fucking gorgeous. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, and, and it humanizes him too, not just the fact that he. Mm-hmm. He scores a hot wife, but the fact that it didn't work out is another aspect of his life that didn't quite turn out the way he had planned. It seems like a guy who has it all, and yet he's sort of sucking air, feeling like he has nothing. Yeah, exactly, and that's Mm -hmm. sort of similar to what happens with um, George Clooney, funnily enough, in The Descendants. It's the same kind of thing. Like, he doesn't have a love interest. His love interest is in a coma, who was his wife, who's having an affair on him. And um, and he, who he thought he was happily married to. Who he thought he was he, happily he, married to. So both yeah. these two, like, you know, hot Hollywood dudes are in movies where they play men who don't have women. It's interesting, isn't it? Like, these two movies can re- are really mm-hmm. going to go head-to-head in a lot of ways. Right, and they're about father-daughter relationships. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, you're mm-hmm. right. Father-daughter yeah. relationships. That's right. I was so convinced watching uh, watching it that, that the girl who plays the daughter had to certainly be the sister of the girl who plays the daughter on Californication. They remind me of each other so much, but it turns out they're not related. But I, I think that they, they look alike and they even sort of have the same style. Everybody's you know, saying, same, like, joke, teasing Katie Rich on um, on Twitter because they're like, Katie, I didn't know you were in Moneyball. <laughs> they're all saying she looks like <laughs> that girl. <laughs> 
Poor baby. Um, but so, Craig, did your did the guys you see it with? What did they think of it? And how old were they? Um, I didn't ask them their ages. I think that they were probably in their late twenties, early thirties. Mm -hmm. And what did they think? Um, they were similar to me, kind of in the middle. So, like, they liked it, but it didn't quite win them over. Yeah, they were bored, I think, by a lot of the baseball stuff. They were bored by the pacing of it. Um, they liked the performances especially, and I did too, especially Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. Um, but it just didn't quite add up into what they were expecting, I don't think. Hmm. What do you think they were expecting? You know, I don't know. I, um, I wasn't even sure what to expect, even though I knew what the story was. I w I'd been scratching my head trying to figure out how they were going to make the story, that story into a compelling into a compelling movie and I understand that they they tried to do it it's like they decided at one point and I think they ran into this problem with Steven Soderbergh who was probably going to focus much more on the baseball aspect of it I think the people with the money realized that there really wasn't a compelling audience friendly story in the baseball part of it and so they needed to punch up the the Billy Bean part of it and the daughter part of it and I think they tried to do that but I don't think they quite I don't think they pulled it off enough to overcome some of the drudgery of the sports part of it mm hmm interesting mm -hmm. I thought they it did worked, it worked for me on all those levels though I thought that they, I thought that they handled that and balanced it really really well I mean I couldn't have been happier with it the guy that I went with uh, is 28 but his, his English is not that great and so he was pretty much lost you know he, he, he not only doesn't know anything about <laughs> baseball but he really couldn't keep up with the with the intricacies and the subtleties of the dialogue either and I really got get the feeling although we didn't talk about it I'm, I'm not he laughing just went because with me and, and just and whatever I bought the ticket for he was just up for you know but I really had the idea. I mean, I got the impression he was expecting it to be a comedy. Something about the title, even Moneyball, and the fact that Jonah Hill was in it is the only really person that he was, was familiar with. I think he was expecting it to be a comedy. And in the beginning, he even kind of laughed inappropriately a couple of places, thinking that he ought to try to pretend like he thought it was but funny. But you know what? They and did laugh in the, in the first screening well, that I, know, I saw I, it. People funny, were laughing but, all the way yeah. through it. You know, that was the thing. That was the difference yeah. between the first crowd and the second crowd is that I think the second crowd didn't understand that it was supposed to be funny. And that everything was yeah, it funny. It was really funny. But not, I don't know if there's so much to laugh out loud funny in the way he was expecting it right, to be. Right, sort right. of like, um, and, and But then the rest of the audience that were around us were not really laughing. They were older people, too. Like you said, a lot of people in their 50s um, were at this movie. And you, you, can, you can think, you can just see that they, I guess where they advertised it, they advertised it a lot during baseball games and on ESPN. And so people knew, at least the people in the audience where I saw it, seemed like they knew what, to expect. Well, what did they think of they it? What the did your crowd? Way. What did your crowd think of it? How did they react to it? My crowd. They were the same. Oh, either of you guys. Yeah. Go ahead, Ryan. Go ahead, Craig. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was. I saw okay. it in a, a suburban audience about 30 miles outside of LA. It was a small theater. It was probably about maybe half to two thirds full. Um, I could sense them at certain points trying to get roused, like especially during the streak scenes and all that stuff, but it, 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 never, it never seemed to reach that crescendo of excitement at all. And they were pretty much, we were the only ones left in the theater before the credits were like a third of the way over. Hmm. Was so it an uh, afternoon, was it a matinee or evening show? It was early evening. It was a 6.05 show. Yeah. So they're basically, what I you're saying is people are not getting what they think they're getting. Like they're not getting what they're expecting when they go in the theater. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I can't say that for sure because I don't know what people are expecting. But I'm not sure that it that it delivers 
sort of what it promises. Or, or put it this way, it didn't deliver what I would have expected if I didn't know anything about the story going in. Mm. Um, and when it comes to sports movies, and, and especially baseball movies, the ones that I tend to gravitate most towards are ones like Bull Durham that really aren't that much about baseball, but baseball is just used as sort of a, a background tableau, but it's populated with all these really fun and interesting characters. And this one had two interesting characters, and the rest were kind of kind of nothings. I mean, they, since they were, like, maybe because they were based on real people, they felt they had to be, remain true or whatever, but it just, you know, Scott Hatterberg and David Justice mm, and God, all I those characters Hatterberg. were not that appealing. Oh, God, I disagree so much. Uh, Hatterberg had me from the beginning, from the scene me of too. his wife mm. and his daughter, his and I was just rooting for him so hard. He was like Billy Bean. He was the forgotten yeah. character that they revived. You know, this this idea that you have to be a winner, you know, to, to play the game of baseball has just been totally upended. And I love that about this movie. You know, every that, other movie is about winners and losers. And this is about people who, who have been discarded and who are being revived and who are shown, given a chance to play the game, you know, just to play the game. And that is what's great about it to me. That's an, ex I mean, that's an excellent point. Thank I you. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't mean that as condescendingly as it sounded. No, it didn't sound condescending. Okay, okay. It's good. nice of you to say I'm just, I'm trying to couch my disappointment that you didn't like it. I'm oh. trying to pretend like it doesn't bother me that you didn't like it because I really I thought it was it. a really, really well-balanced ensemble, too. I thought all the cameos were great. I thought every, every, down to the smallest role, even the, even all the guys, the, the older leathery guys sitting around the table at the beginning, you know, giving all the bad advice. They were all great, I thought. Me too. And, and um, it's and definitely going to hit. Now, I'm sorry. Trying to find the cinema score, because uh, we're we're speculating about what the audience well, has thought, and if I can find the cinema. According score, to I, um, we'll... Phil, who I just talked to, he said that it's A's across the board. And when mm -hmm. I looked I see at that now, yeah, A's, male, female, young, old from cinema score. Uh, 36 percent under 35, 60 percent over 35, 64 percent over 35. Once again, Craig demonstrates an utter <laughs> lack of understanding of what American audiences really want. Craig, I wanted you to like the movie. I'm really? so mad that you don't now. Me too. Like I, I said, thought everybody I had, would I like it more than me. I had a lot of baggage going in, and I tried really hard to leave it at the door, but I just couldn't. The uh, there, there's a lot of elements of the of the baseball part of the story that they told that are not entirely. Uh, I don't want to say they're inaccurate, but they emphasize things for the sake of drama that just weren't really. I don't know. Well, there were some things that were inaccurate. I mean, absolutely. Well, well for one uh, thing, the almost, daughter almost thing. Like fabricated. The daughter thing isn't real. He he does no daughter story. That's like. But that that was the best part. No, I know, but that was <laughs> that was brought in by the the, the writer. I mean. Right. You know, it's based on a true story. It's not an exactly a true story. You know. No, but just just the ideas that they're dealing with in, the, in from the book itself. I think there's controversy about how how accurate that is. In fact, oh, I know we can talk I, about that, and you two will have to talk about it because I get the feeling you both know know more about it than I do. I only know from stuff I've read. Like if you read, if you go to the rap and you read Steve Pond's thing, he talks about the inaccuracies. I also read a great story by this sports guy who loved in the sports movie. Illustrated. I don't know if I read that one, but he loved the okay. movie, but he, and he talks about that it's inaccurate, but so what? It's still a good movie, you know? I mean, it's yeah. the same thing that happened with The Social Network. You know, it's like, you know, 
and yeah, the insider that for matter. that matter. That kind of stuff never. I never think about that. You know, I mean, I'm there for the movie. If I want, if I want the true story, like people have said, I've heard people, someone said online, then they should make you know, wait for the documentary. Wait for wait for Ken Burns to do the movie about it. You know? Well, Soderbergh wanted to do more of the true story, and 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 Soderbergh's mm-hmm. version. I got this from a guy who wrote me. In Soderbergh's version, it ends with. Billy Bean totally pissed off in the in the dugout because he not the dugout but in their workout room because he mm-hmm. um, he loses again because he realizes that the, mm-hmm. the monster that he created is helping other teams win against the Oakland A's and so it's a two different yeah. ways to interpret it. I prefer the Bennett Miller Steve Zalian Aaron Sorkin version because I think they get the big picture and I think if you paint Billy Bean that way he's an interesting character he's more like a Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Or a Mark Zuckerberg, where nothing is ever going to be right. He's never going to see himself mm-hmm. as a winner. He has to win, or else nothing else matters, you know. But yeah. no, that's not really accurate to life at all, you know. So I thought that I like their version of it and their interpretation of it. And I think Billy Bean should feel some pride in the fact that he did change the game, whether or not he made it win for the Oakland A's or not. He changed the game, yeah. you know. The only thing I hate that he didn't he didn't catch he wasn't able to catch in on it. I mean, because I would have liked to see that. I mean, because I just you know you just feel like when somebody invents something that they should reap some of the rewards, and so it's a shame. But it was his own decision. He he could have, if that part is true, he could have easily cashed in on 12 million bucks if he'd wanted to. If he wanted to change teams. Another thing that I read, and I had to go back to an article I think that I saw in the Times from 2009 when when the movie first they thought it was dead in the water because they couldn't they were having too many conflicts about which way to go with that nobody could get. A handle on it. I think that Soderbergh originally planned to have interviews with actual people who, with some of the real actual ball players, uh, sort of like Reds type interviews, inter- intercut with the movie. And when Sony saw that he wanted to do that, that's not how they wanted to go with it. They didn't want to turn it into so much of a documentary. Uh, and they thought that he that, that it was just the wrong direction and it wasn't going to it was going to lack the emotional hook, you know. And so. They, I guess, I don't know at what point uh, Sorkin came on, but I mean, they should just, um, you know, they should just get Sorkin to rewrite everything as far as I'm concerned. Because whatever that he did to it is magic, I thought. I mean, this is a magical script, I think. Um, I think so, too. It's when like we first heard it... that he was doing a baseball movie, I thought, what the hell? Is this your follow-up to The Social Network? Why would you want to do that? But I really see it now. I understand what attracted him to the story. But I don't think it did attract him. He was kind of brought in as a cleanup guy. Like, it was Steve Zellian. Right, I know that. But, I mean, why would he even accept the job? Why would he even accept to, to, why would he even find anything interesting and worthy of his talent? And I think that, I think, I don't know where I read this, but I think someone compared it to Social Network insofar as uh, they're both about, how uh, how the information age and internet technology can has revolutionized so many aspects of our life, and that's how social network and 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 Moneyball are similar. That's that's the connecting thread between them is the information age. The thing that bothers me about the social network comparison is that. You know, the same way people gunned for that movie, they're going to be gunning for this mm. one. They're, it's already starting. You know, they they mm. you know it's it's going to be dragged out as a reason why the movie won't. Do, do as well as expected, why it won't move people, blah, blah, blah. It's not as good as a social network. You know, I just kind of wish, I mean, is everything that's, that Aaron Sorkin does from now on going to be compared with that, with social mm-hmm. network? Yeah, I th- maybe where I read that they were trying to to, to make a stretch there. I do kind of see it where, where before before Google and before you were able to do these data comparisons with, like, by computer, this kind of analysis of, wouldn't have been possible. But it is a little bit of a stretch to make any kind of connections between those two movies. Hmm. I, I don't, it's hard I don't to understand how people are saying that it's about, not. 
Go ahead, Craig, sorry. I don't think any controversy about the veracity of the movie is going to stick the way it did with the social network because the movie's not making any controversial claims necessarily. I mean, if you're a huge baseball nerd, you can argue whether Bill James was right or wrong, but most people don't really care about that. They're just going to focus on on the character drama and the emotions of the story. Yeah, unless they're a diehard baseball fan, then you're going to resent the way things changed. You're going to say, he Bill right. James ruined baseball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and but again, I think that's going to be a tiny, tiny minority of people that will be... I would hope so, because to me, it, it just... In Picture. From a complete outside point of view, it just seems like it makes it such a more fair game. Just like that they were saying at the beginning, it's, it's just so it's such an unfair game when the richest team can get the richest players. I mean, the the, the most the, the best players, and it makes much more sense if you can find a way to, to utilize the uh, less expensive players yeah. and still win. And it would have been so great I think if they would be all for that. Except the less expensive players aren't less expensive anymore because everybody's onto it, and now the Yankees and the and the Red Sox are spending hand over fist for the players that would have gone under the radar before. They so get on this base, tiny yeah. this tiny little window of time where Billy Bean was able to pick out undervalued players and what what good did it do him? I mean the but Oakland the days it, are back to being in yeah. third place in their division again. It didn't really do him any no. good, but what it did do was it changed the way this idea, this notion of this ridiculous notion of these baseball stars getting these huge salaries and that they didn't win, they didn't do their teams any big favors because they, but you're right, it just switched over to being the, the lesser, the not the big stars making the big money, but the players who get on base. But, you know, I, I love that Billy Beans, Billy Beans' cool saving grace and his, the thing that makes him a hero is that he was willing to do something nobody else was willing to do. He was willing to take a chance on a theory that you know mm-hmm. to to stare down you know a hundred years of baseball history in the way that it's done, to stare it down and say you know what I don't have enough money I'm going to try something different, and he took a chance where no one else would, and that's I think the thing about him that makes him heroic. And mm-hmm. I love that the whole through line of his character is I hate to lose, and I love that he was plucked out of his life when he could have gone to Stanford. And I love that he's totally put out to pasture, and I love that people think of him that way as a failure, you know, and that he wants mm-hmm. to try to revive that, and he still thinks of himself as a loser until that guy puts it in perspective in Boston and says, this is what you did, you know? This is what you did. That makes you somebody who's very successful at what you set out to do. No, it's not making you personally successful, unless he had switched over to the Red Sox, but it makes you, he could have. He could have gone to the Red Sox, and he could be a winner now. Mm-hmm. But he wanted to stick with his team. So what does that make him, a tragic hero? Does it make him a failure? What does it make him? I mean, to I don't me- know if it's so tragic, as long as he was doing what he, what he generally loved and what he felt right about it. I, uh, uh, it's the only, the only tragic thing, like I said, is that he lost out on the, on the, on the big payday. But um, he doesn't seem like an unhappy guy to me. You know, He doesn't seem yeah. like he's... He didn't care I, about I the money. I know he would like... He didn't seem to care about and, the and money I, at I'm, all. And the- Do you think in the context of the movie that he learned the lesson that winning the last game isn't all that matters? Do you think he got that? Do you no. think the character in the movie got that? No, I don't, no, know, I don't because think that was so. One of, the, that was one of the titles at the end was he was still trying to win his last game. Wasn't it? Wasn't that one of the last uh, um, I think the whole, um, the captains po- that came up on screen? The point of the movie is, is, is exactly what they say. It's right there. It's, it's, you know, you're such a loser, Dad. Just enjoy the show. He's got his daughter mm-hmm. there in Oakland. He doesn't want to leave California so he can spend time with her. 
you know, and mm. that's it. And that's, that's all it's about, mm. you know, and if you lived a life of failure, many of us know mm. what it's like to sacrifice your dreams. Some of us, Emma, my daughter who's 13, has no idea that life kicks you in the teeth and, you know, is a bucket of shit mm. with the handles on the insides. She doesn't know that. Mm. To her, life is still wide open. Everything is possible. But for those of that's us... That's why the last scene got me the way that it did, because it was, it was the part where the movie finally clicked for me, like two hours and 15 minutes into it, was when the sense that he was finally recognizing that the most important thing in the world was not necessarily on the field. It was... Right the voice that he was hearing over over his radio and i i mm -hmm. that's the one and it doesn't really that's why it doesn't really matter to me whether or not the daughter is actually a real person in real life or not because in a way the voice over the radio she played you know, a role sort of at his of his conscience or his you know she was she embodied his conscience and soul yeah, but then there were also other changes that he made, like he was going through the dugout and he was allowing himself to have relationships with the players and he he was getting mm -hmm the human aspects of, of life. And that's really what it's right. all about, yeah. dudes. I mean, it's not about anything so else. Yeah. It's not about money. Right. It's not about winning, mm -hmm. as Charlie Sheen has taught us. It's right. about mm -hmm. this. It's about human relationships. It's about kindness. It's about generosity. It's about self-sacrifice, you know, mm -hmm. watching your I, kid. <clears throat> I guess that aspect of it got a little clouded for me in all of the supposedly true-to-life stuff. With the stuff going right. on, on the, with the stuff going on on the field. Yeah, and that wouldn't have been as good if it hadn't been for Jonah Hill. Like the scene, there are a couple of exactly. really great. Exactly, I was going to say he's he's the most valuable player in this movie, wasn't he? Jonah oh my Hill? God, there's some really great scenes. The two of the ones that stand out in my mind as real set pieces. I know this because I just saw it again. Was the one, the first one where, do I care if they, you know, do I care if they, whatever he says, get on base or strike out, and and Jonah Hill says, you do not. <laughs> Everybody right. laughs, uh -huh. you know, and every time when he's he was like, finally given permission and, he, and validation to speak, he really <laughs> wasn't afraid to speak anymore. Well, he, really, he says, do you, you know. want me to speak? <laughs> I love that whole uh, bit yes, where, I pointed to you, yes. <laughs> where um, Brad Pitt points to him and he says exactly. And then the other scene that's great is when he's on the phone and he's trying to get Rincon and... Or is he trying to trade Rincon? It's either he's, he's getting... He's trying to get Rincon and get rid of one of his other guys. And Steve Schott yeah. is calling him and everything's done with Jonah Hill. And the other. That, that whole sequence is so brilliant and so funny. And you've got to watch it again to watch Brad Pitt in that scene. That's the scene. If he wins the Oscar, that's the scene that's going to win it for him. Because he's so mm. funny. He's like, because I'm amazing. He takes a big handful of popcorn, he shoves right. it in his mouth, no. and then the phone rings and he... <gasps> Spits it out and starts talking on the phone. It's so great. I never thought he had it in him to pull out such a great performance. I mean, it's not showy. It's not pretentious. It's, it's, you know. It's very relaxed. I and mean, mm. it just works. He's in his skin. He's comfortable in his skin. He knows what it is to be a father now. So all the scenes with his daughter are just great. He's like, you're worrying about me. And there's one moment toward the end that I just uh, fell in love with Brad Pitt. And I've never been in love with him in all my years. I've always thought he was cute, but I've never gotten the whole Brad Pitt thing until the very end when he, when that guy misses, you know, he hits that homer and he says... Um, Brad Pitt says, oh, they're laughing at him. It's just such a sweet thing that he says. It's just, he's, just shows him as being a very oh, yeah, right, compassionate right. person, you know. Yeah. And what other star would do that, you know? What other star looks like Brad Pitt yeah, would do that? <laughs> Maybe anyway. Paul Newman. Maybe Paul Newman could, could, could carry that off. I don't know. I don't even think Paul Newman. 
Because, you know, Brad Pitt, through the whole movie, he's like, you know, to the woman who brings the cookies, he's like, thank you, that is so kind of you. <laughs> Anytime yeah. he's with a woman, he just is so nice. And I just, you know, really, how could you not watch this movie and not fall for the guy? You know, he's just so wonderful. I know he's probably, he, every, from all reports, he's a great guy in person, too, in real life. He's, he's, he's like that. But I've never seen him like this in any, in any, any other venue. I've never seen him uh, act this way on the talk show. He was a different person. He's not playing Brad Pitt, so it really infuriates me when people say that. He can't, he can't do anything about the way he looks. He's going to always look like Brad Pitt. But he didn't act like a Brad Pitt to me. Just way, tell me, does Bridesmaids, is it like a marriage propaganda movie like they all are, you know? It's like I refuse not, to see movies really. that are... I don't think it is. It's more of a, it's a, it's a female friendship propaganda movie. Mm-hmm. It is. But is it <laughs> like everybody really lives, like in all. The Hangover right. is, The Hangover is one, and everybody knows how much I love that movie, but it's totally a marriage propaganda movie. Like, it's a massive secret chick flick, that movie. It is. And at the end, it's like everybody's all married, and the husbands are all in these happy yeah. relationships, and, the, you know, I'm not criticizing the movie, because I love it, mm-hmm. but I'm just saying mm-hmm. that whenever I know that there's a hidden <clears throat> marriage propaganda agenda in a movie, I never want to see it, because I don't want to see that crap. Mm-hmm. The marriage doesn't even really factor into it. I don't even remember who it is she gets hitched to. I don't think it matters. Does it? In Bridesmaids? Yeah. It's all Um, about the relationships among the girls. Right, yeah. Uh And the wedding is just sort of an excuse to stir the pot. And and Kristen Wiig never really talks about getting married herself, but she does want to... She wants. She to never actually guy. really thought about it until her friend wants to get. Until she finds out her friend is getting married, and then she starts to think, "Well, sh- now here I am. I'm going to be alone. I've had my my best friend from childhood all this time, right. and now I'm going to be alone." And and she kind of is thinking like it's time for her to settle down too. But she is involved with a couple of people who are not the right person to settle down with. Right. Mm. Humorously so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although I don't really think I you know, I know I like John Hamm a lot, but uh Oh John Hamm. I, I don't really think that he's uh I don't think he should do a lot of comedy. <laughs> I, I totally disagree. My favorite thing that he's ever done is the stuff that he's done on Saturday Night Live. I think he's hilarious. Oh Saturday Night Live, yeah, that was pretty good, I will admit. Yeah, that he did some good that was that was a good episode. That was a good segment. All all of his stuff on Saturday Night Live. But um this I don't know. Maybe I just didn't I didn't care for the character that he played in Bridesmaids. He was a cock. <laughs> he was. He was a, he absolutely. So who does he play? He's a prick. He's just like he's a really uh, arrogant, self-centered, and he. Uh, that's why I said that you'll identify a little bit with the, with uh, with bridesmaids because it's some. Uh, she he he likes for her to come over and have sex, and then he likes for her not to stay over. Oh, who's she? Kristen and, and Wiig. He makes that clear. Kristen Wiig. Kristen Wiig. <laughs> Kristen Wiig is so funny. She is, she is, you know, but it's like, for me, she has, um, she has one or two sticks that she does, and she does them, and both of them, all of them involve taking things to the extreme, and, right. and, and dragging it out, and dragging it out, and dragging it out, and that's okay, kind of, on Saturday Night Live, because there's a limit to how long they will let her do that, because it's, it's going to be over in five minutes, but, <laughs> but in the movie, there's, she can, she just really goes on and on and on a lot. I think the movie could have been better if it had been about a half an hour shorter. I thought about that because I also I agree that it's messy and 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 lazy and it just kind of drags on. Um, but I can't think of anything that I would cut out because I think the stuff that they put in it to me it worked. And some well, some of know, the jokes the, the longer they carried them out, like the one where she's trying to get the attention of the 
of the Irish cop guy by driving mm-hmm. past him back and right, forth right. doing wacky things. <laughs> yeah. It's like she does it like four times and it's sort of funny, but then she keeps doing it and keeps getting crazier and crazier. Oh. And, and it just becomes funnier and funnier to me. And I yeah. and I say that as somebody who's never really liked her on Saturday Night Live. So it's kind of funny mm-hmm. that our opinions of her are, are totally different. She always but annoyed that, the shit out of me on Saturday Night Live. I know. I mean, well, that's what I say. Her 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 style of humor is dependent on the fact of taking things until it's, until it almost wears you out, until it becomes exhausting, and then it, then it, then it cross, then it tips over the line until you start to laugh again. The thing Hopefully. like at the at the at the, uh, at the bridal shower when when they're both. Um, making a, a toast to the to the bride, right? Mm-hmm. And they, she keeps trying to outdo the the best friend, you know. She keeps right. trying to outdo the other girl. We don't want to say too much about it because Sasha will probably see it, and we don't want to ruin anything. But it, it's the same type of thing where where you think, all right, all right, just quit. This has gone on too long. But then it reaches a point where it starts to be funny again because it just goes on so long. Hmm. But it makes it. It's it's a very. It's for me. It just uh, I. I, I was getting really tired of it by the last half hour, half hour of the movie. I would love it as long as it doesn't. It sounds like you will. I really. It end I, with, I, I think you with, will. you know, Kristen Wiig meets Prince Charming and everybody lives happily ever after. If that doesn't happen, I'll love the movie. If it does happen, then yeah. I'll hate it. I yeah. think we won't there, say there's. You, a, there's uh, yeah, I don't really want to tell you how it ends. I I, I don't think the ending will piss you off because no, that kind of thing would would piss me off too. Mm-hmm. If it turns out that there's, you know, there's somebody for everybody, you know, these movies, they're, they're lovely, you know, and I, I would hope that everybody ends up their lives like that. But there are some of us out there that don't live their lives like that, that are, you know, bummed out and heartbroken and can't have relationships. And Mm -hmm. so those kind of movies, you know. That's if I can segue. If you want, if you feel like segueing into something that we might actually put in the podcast <laughs> instead of just rambling, that's kind of the difference between the original Straw, Dog, Straw Dogs and the, and the new one. Is the this the new version has more of a happy ending than the original did. They do sort of. She does sort of in the in the this new version. She realizes that her husband is not a coward, and I think they're they're going to stay together. In the original, their marriage is shot. Dustin Hoffman and Susan George, they're not going to be able to get back together. They're not going to be able to work no things way, out after really? what they've been through. And, in fact, he drives off at the end. He sort of abandons her. That, and to me, is a happy ending because their <laughs> was a fraud to begin with. She was a terrible character. And she the was? only reason he was interested in her is because she was attractive. And yeah, she, yeah. She, was a, she was mean to him. Um, she was disrespectful of the work that he was trying to do. He, she even hesitated at one point. There's that key scene near the end, the big confrontation where she's got the shotgun and the and the bad guy who had raped her is on top of her husband, and she hesitates, like she's not sure she wants to kill the guy. And right. So I, although I took that, I mean, I really took that as having ambivalence about being able to commit murder. I mean, which is a natural sort of thing you would think that someone would have. That she was actually just horrified by the idea that she was going to have to murder somebody mm-hmm. in order to to end this. And Possibly. so I kind of gave her, I gave her a little bit of credit for not just. But you, you, you may be right. There's, there's part of that too that she was torn between. Obviously, she was torn between. Uh, her husband and the, and the rapist, because of the way that Peck and Paul cut the rape scene that was different from the way that um, Rod, Rod Lurie did it, is that she actually had flashes of 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 seeing her husband mixed in during the rape. Right? She was she was that thing that Peck and Paul does those those really subliminal kind of uh, 
glass cuts that he does. Yeah, uh, yeah. She was she was in her mind. She was mixing up um, who she was with almost. Yeah, well, there's a lot of controversy about that scene because there's a certain point where she's actually liking what's happening to her. Um, But it's important to remember that the guy who was doing it was an ex-boyfriend of hers. That doesn't Mm -hmm. justify it. Oh, oh shit, I don't even know if I want to go here because it's such a a controversial thing. Um, No, it's good. I think it's good. I think it's important because it was really the whole point. That's a big point of the movie. I mean, yeah. And uh, you, you saw the remake, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Then, then you know that that in the original, she does enjoy it more. It's more. Right. It's it's much more clear that she's enjoying it, the rape more than she did in in the remake. Right, and of course, a lot of people interpreted that to mean that Peck and Paw is saying that all women mm-hmm. are asking for rape and that they like it, rather mm-hmm. than uh, rather than suggesting that maybe there are certain women who do have fantasies about that kind of thing, but it doesn't mean that. That that's what all women want or should have. Mm-hmm. Um, well, she yeah. was more. She uh, Susan George was more of a flirt. She came onto him more. She was more ambivalent when he started to come onto her uh, before, just before the rape. She let right. it go. She 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 sort of um, let it go too far before she started saying no. And then in the middle of it, she was caressing him and everything else. So it was obvious that she was into it much more so than than it was with Kate Bosworth, who really just sort of um, uh, tolerated it maybe or just sort of became resigned to it. She became more resigned to what was happening to her. Yeah, she was never she was never encouraging at all. She got to a point where she wasn't fighting back, but it wasn't it wasn't submission. It was just resignation, if anything. Which is funny, though, because the one another difference is that in the beginning, when when Dustin Hoffman uh, first meets the ex-boyfriend, he asks what what if she was ever with him. And she said that um, she used to go out with him but nothing ever happened but in the in the remake Kate Bosworth tells um, her husband that yes she was with him and it was memorable you know so she's she makes it sound like in the in the remake that they had really had something hot going on right yeah it's much more vague and it's mm-hmm. just it's only, it's, it's only it, slightly I like, alluded that, that's to. one thing I, although I have such great respect for the original and I know that it was groundbreaking and there was nothing that had ever been seen like that on the, on the screen before so for those reasons it's an important film and, and it's important also just uh, technically almost like as a film school movie just for the way that it's, that it's edited and everything I, I still think I kind of prefer the, the more vague and more the, 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 the more intense conflict and more mixed up conflict of the, of the remake than I do in the original because I just think because uh, the, the everybody is, it, everybody's motivations and everybody's uh, desires are, are more mixed up than they were in the original right I think I prefer the original as a thriller, um, although like um, a lot of criticism around it, I, I don't really much care for its politics. Um, but the thing is, is I think um, I think you have to you have to look at Rod Lurie's version as a direct response. I mean, I think he's acknowledged that himself that it mm-hmm. was a direct response to the original, but he substitutes. It, it, his his version of it is still just as didactic as Peckinpah's. If you buy the argument that Peckinpah is 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 arguing well, I, that that all yeah. people are basically violent, um, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that's his his argument. And and Rod Lurie is saying that that's not true. That violence is learned behavior. Mm-hmm. But I still think they they're both they both get heavy handed message wise, and they both fall down when they get out of outside of the basic thriller element. 
Lurie was a little bit heavy-handed with the religious part, but the, I do the religion think, and the football uh, uh, and yeah. and all of that. I do think that that you know knew from the beginning, from the very opening shot of the Peck and Paul version, that you were in for a morality lesson. Just I just you just felt it right away that you were that this was this was almost like um, a morality play, and that you were about to receive a lecture about. Uh, uh, a fable, almost. It was almost like a fable of of of, of, of the consequences of of of, of um, wrong, bad desires, and I thought it was a. I liked the fact that in the remake it was more subtle, that you didn't really feel like, you 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 realized that you had a lesson afterwards. After the movie was over, you realized that there there had been a lesson taught. You didn't. It wasn't announced to you to begin with. That's the impression I, think, I, I got. I think it. I was more absorbed in the thriller aspects of the Peckinpah version. So the the message didn't hit me over the head as much as it did in the Larry version. Mm. But yeah, uh, as, as a thriller, as a thriller, it was effective, but at the same time, um, I, th- I found the remake a lot more, if you can say entertaining, if you can say this kind of movie is entertaining, I guess I can, because I, I, th- I felt more entertained by the second version, by the, by the remake. The, the, the original was almost like a, uh, a punishment. It got caught up more in its message. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Sa- Sasha, you're, you're so quiet. I know. I'm just getting more and more depressed as the evening wears on. Oh, no. <laughs> Maybe this was a bad movie to talk no, about. No, no. The thing about Straw Dogs is that um, the only thing I really like about it, this idea of it, is is kind of the Darwinian um, aspect of it, which I think Rod Lurie captured pretty well. I haven't, unfortunately haven't seen the Peckinpah one, so I can't even comment on it, but... Hmm. I don't know if Peckinpah was going for that, but I like this idea of primal instincts to protect and to, you know, the thing is, is in the animal world, um, sex is pretty violent. Like there isn't, there aren't really any species where they just sit down, lay down, have foreplay and have sex. You know, humans are the only ones. There's there's biting and everything. Biting and cat, you know, it's almost rape, but the female has to, Instigate it by being in heat and by allowing the man in. You know, it's mm-hmm. like she they go through this dance where, you know, he has to show in, in a lot of different species like pigeons and uh, lions and you know the, they have to go through these kind of this ritual of the guy the the male follows the female around for a long time and then the female decides that the window is open and she sort of makes herself ready. He basically r- rapes her and then leaves mm. and she's pregnant, mm. you know. Mm. Sort of how it works if it's if it's successful. It's not like how we have to do it, which is we fall in love and blah, blah, blah. You know, but I think straw dogs... become is, ritualized in a way that, that it's become uh, like a, a courtship thing. Of course, animals have what they call courtship too, but maybe we're just... Maybe that's just something that we've imposed on... Well, they have courtships Anthrop- in, in anthropomorphizing as as, animals by saying right. they go through courtship. Which right. Is, to, to say like, that they fall in love is silly, but I mean, of course, yeah. I mean, we don't know, but we assume that it's silly. But you know, um, they they form attachments sometimes. But I don't not know. To say humans fall in love is silly too. <laughs> when you come down to it, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't know if they do or not, but uh, but what I like about um, Star Dogs is that. To me, that it was all that weird stuff in play. Like it was, um, you know, it was it was all the primal stuff. The the only place that I think it it sort of was a slippery slope was that she seemed to really want um, Alexander Sarsgaard to. You know, she was still attracted to him, 
And then so in the rape scene, mm. when she says no, 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 it's, it's a weird mm. scene because we're trained as moviegoers to want the cute guy to get the cute girl and for mm-hmm. the cute girl to want to want the guy, you know. And, and so the fact that she doesn't, we're supposed to hate him. We're supposed to think he's this bad guy, but it's really hard because he's so fucking cute, you know. Right. That's so. what I liked about. That's one of the things I liked about the the remake is because in the in the original the rapists were not, at least to me, were not attractive, and so you can't really understand why she would be coming on to this guy so much. He wasn't even that much more attractive than Dustin Hoffman. He was. And, yeah, exactly. And, and I and, liked how. Rod Lurie set it up because I liked that their sex wasn't that great and that he wasn't mm-hmm. he was sort of a failure the husband right. to her like she seemed to really want more animalistic sex mm-hmm. yeah. and she she definitely wanted a guy who wanted it more than he did right. so that's another reason why you think that you expect it to be this kind of you know Rachel Ward you know bodice ripping scene where when he rapes her it's like a Rhett Butler Scarlett O'Hara kind of thing you're expecting mm-hmm. her to just oh god you know I love you and, and she doesn't and then it turns into this weird violent act and then so it was it was a conflicting movie I thought it it sort of felt weird to watch it like it didn't quite seem to know where it stood morally you know it didn't know what yeah, it, it wanted I, I to think say. You think you may be right about the, I, I, but I like that's what I like about it, that it's more morally ambiguous, uh, and uh, and there were parts, there were things in the remake that the original didn't do at all that that I can remember at least. It's been a while since I've seen the original, but I don't think that 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 Susan George came on to the to to. I don't think she like I don't I know she didn't expose herself to the world yeah, here on the roof. Did she? she did. Yeah. No, I don't remember that. See, it's been a long time. I didn't. I didn't know she did that. I don't remember that part at all. Okay, so I'm wrong about that. But so Google she Google the word Susan George nude, and you'll see you'll see pictures okay. of the scene where yeah. she flashes herself to yeah. the to the dudes on the roof. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm wrong about this. So okay, then she did. Um, it just it just seems like it was a lot more subtle to me though in the original, and and that and that uh, Kate Bosworth came on a lot more strongly. But like like Sasha says, it could just be that they're they you just want they're just, you just want to be you want to be looking at them. They're also sexy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and. Well, I know that, that Rod Lurie has said that he thought that it was a sort of a feminist telling of Straw Dogs, of a retelling. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's right. What do you think? I mean, he he handles any... the rape in a much more sensitive way. I mean, regardless of what mm-hmm. you think about female urges or however many women you know who like to have rough sex or forced sex, to suggest that in a movie that no doesn't mean no, to even really imply it, especially in a movie where that's the only example of a female character and in fact in a filmography that isn't really well known for strong female characters that's a pretty dangerous thing and it it rightfully stirred up a lot of controversy and i think i think lurie avoids that um it 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 makes for less of a conversation piece but it makes for a more palatable movie for sure yeah so i guess you just have to wonder you know 
What, what's well, I like them both. It's one of these situations where I'm glad they didn't do the remake because I like to compare them. It's almost it, it makes them it makes both movies more interesting to be able to talk about them together and compare the differences. And I I, I don't understand people who who get mad about remakes and and don't don't know why you want to remake a classic. Why not? You know, if it causes if it can make you think more about the original, even if you even if you just no matter what you decide about the the, the relative value of each of them, I think it's a good thing. That's the thing is, even though I'm not crazy about Lurie's vision for the movie, mm-hmm. I think critics were really unfair to him. By I think a lot of them dismissed him in advance simply mm-hmm. because they remember from film school that Straw Dogs is this untouchable sacred cow, and that to mm-hmm. remake it is is an insult to cinema. Whereas if you if you watch the movie, there's there's some significant problems with it, and that was what Lurie was responding to, and, and mm-hmm. his reasons for redoing it weren't. Unlike most redos that are basically go, trying to go by name, familiarity, and just trying to make money, he had something definitely to say. You can agree with what he has to say or not, but at least it comes from an honest, intellectual place. Yeah, uh, the the remake is much more polished and in in, in, polished down to down to the smallest performance, and everything else about it. I thought this, of course, the cinematography and the sets and 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 all the all the details. Even even although the editing was incredibly groundbreaking in, in the original, I thought that the editing in the remake was great. And another thing that really impressed me about the remake, James Woods, man, he really nailed that character, that accent. I mean, I know people like that living around this part of the country he he had it down i mean he was totally i wouldn't have thought he would ever been able to do that to pull it off to to play a redneck like that but he really did i thought he was terrific yeah that was unfortunately for me that's when the movie kind of lost me was that whole part yeah well like when not james wood specifically Uh i thought he was good but i mean Mm -hmm. when they started to come to the house and chase down that guy and you know it's, uh, it's like to me it would have been better left alone if there was I mean, I guess they wouldn't have had a reason. Is that in the original too? There's. It like... is. Yeah, that's all of all of that. The fact that the guy is is mentally kind of um, slow and 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 the whole every every part of it. The fact. And that, he kills that, a girl and everything. Mm, yeah, exactly. It's all in the original. Yeah, so they had sort of had to do that. If they left that out, the outcry would have been. I can't even imagine if they oh. left that part out, because it would have been a totally different movie. And that's that's one of the events that's taken directly from the story as well. Mm-hmm, yeah. I guess I just felt like the movie didn't foreshadow that well enough and make it a inevitability and make mm-hmm. it a um, an argument about capital pu- not capital punishment but an argument about brutality and an eye for um, an eye lynch mob kind lynch of mob. Of, yeah. Mm-hmm, it yeah. didn't it didn't set it up that way because we were so focused on her and him and their lives and yeah it's also it w- a different time and place you know we're not as trapped the way we would have been back in the 70s with our because of our technology you know we mm-hmm. have we right. have access to technology we have ways out so it was like um i just thought that when things started to get weird and violent i thought you know i just, just wasn't quite buying it that they had to stay there you know. Yeah, although they did kind of, they, they did try to explain that the fact that he couldn't get cell phone reception, they did, he he I had know, to go all the way into town before his cell phone would work. And um, so, wouldn't and, you? I mean, really, I would. I'd drive into town. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I, sure, of course you would. But I guess that they that that, that moment, at that time though when they were being surrounded at the house, it was a little bit too late to try to 
you know, driving to town. And, and, and they also, they thought that poli- the, the cops had showed up. So they but thought the, that they were going to be when all right. But when they hang the cat, you know, it's like... Oh, yeah, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that? a, that's another big difference in the original. That I would say the only, the, the best, the, the most, the biggest difference in the acting between the original and, and the uh, remake is that the cat in the original was much better. <laughs> <laughs> I just hate it when a cat, for no reason, jumps into somebody's lap and goes, meow. Cats don't do that. Oh. You just, and that cat just doesn't be thrown be thrown across the room and land in somebody's lap and scre- and screech like that. Mm. I've never had a cat like that, but they oh. do that in the movies all the time. And th- just, that, anyway, just that's to scare you. <laughs> yeah. You mean you can just tell somebody standing right off camera throwing the cat, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then they're adding the sound effect. <laughs> just anyway, that always bugs me. Just a pet peeve of mine. Get it, pet peeve. oh dear but yeah i mean all in all i thought rod Lurie did a really good job like in terms of it being an interesting well done kind of ballsy movie like i thought that Mm -hmm. it was good i mean if i didn't know that there was a sam peckinpah movie out there and that this was the only straw dogs i ever saw i would love it yeah. Well, just, I got to say, it's just ballsy even to attempt it. It's ballsy even to to even to think that you can you could you could uh, approach it. And and I and I think there's a line in the movie. He's got some man in him after all. That's how I felt, you know, after seeing after after when the Rod Lurie movie was over. Man, he's got some man in him, you know, to pull it off like this. He really he really did it. And yeah. I, I I was I guess I was predisposed a little bit to want to like it, but I I I could have easily. Got I would if it hadn't been good I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't have I wouldn't have tried to defend it like I'm doing, um, but I have to say that I was really impressed by it genuinely impressed. I think if it had been less heavy-handed and sort of blaming all the world's problems on Southerners and football and God, I would have mm-hmm. been a lot less critical of it. I would have been more on board just as it as an action thriller. Yeah, I think that's that's my where I would have been like sort of. Um, you know, an action thriller, but a campy one. Because, like I say, I just didn't believe that last part. That would never happen. Not even mm-hmm. in a thriller. That would never happen. They wouldn't surround the house. And, and I just, I guess I didn't believe it, that it was, um, I wasn't, at that point in the movie, I kind of just tuned it out and thought, oh, wow, this is funny. You know, this is a really mm-hmm. wild, weird, funny movie. And yeah. it worked on that level. And the audience at the theater I saw it with were laughing all through that whole part. Oh yeah, uh-huh. because they picked up on the fact that it was just so outrageous and campy, you know. Was it what kind of audience was it though? Was it an uh, industry people? No. Uh, was it, it was like general yeah. audience? Oh okay, you know? yeah, all right. Hmm, it's funny because well, um, you know, you can never tell audiences around this part of the country where I am, and it was a small crowd that night anyway. But the audience uh, kind of was into it when I saw it. And cheered and everything, you know. When, but it's always unrealistic when, when you're, when, when a guy who's never been effectual at fighting before can somehow defeat six brutal guys by himself. You know, it just that's always unrealistic. And but I did like the fact in both movies, in both versions, the fact that they they set you up to think that somebody's going to step into that bear trap, and they and they end up using it a totally different way. In the original and in the, in the remake, they don't step into it at all. It's not a it's not a foot that gets caught in the bear trap. It's 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 a it's the guy's head. Yeah, well, I love that part. <laughs> yeah, I did too. That's what I like about it because you you think uh, you know you're 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 you know something's you know somebody's gonna you know that's gonna be used. It's too much. It's too big of a prop not to be used, but it's used in a way that you don't expect. Yeah, 
I thought that was great. Yeah. <laughs> Star really Dogs, was. it's, it's uh-huh. definitely a movie I will watch repeatedly because, well. Yeah, well, you got to see the original, too, because you'll like the comparison. I think you really will appreciate the comparison. Does and the you're original a big fan of Dustin have, Hoffman, um, too. And does it have Alexander Skarsgård in it? Well, no, it doesn't have that. Okay. No, the guy who plays his part is a, is a mutton chop <laughs> English lowlife. Yeah, he's he's not a, like I said, he's not attractive, and so that really that dispels a lot of the of the of the uh, intensity for me is because you don't really understand why she would be getting into this guy, why right. she would be letting getting into this this kind of. Uh, well, it's sort of the if I'm understanding you guys right, the original Straw Dog sounds like it's kind of blaming women for violence. Like it's sort of like she started all this whole thing. No, uh, she's the instigator, kind of in this case. But I, his point is that we're all capable of violence. If you, if you if you take the most pacifist character mm-hmm. and you challenge them enough, and you challenge their their home and their territory and their property enough, that they'll reach a breaking point eventually, and they will be just as violent. As anybody else, yeah. Um, Pauline Kael suggested that he goes even further than that. She said that he was saying that that that's the path to true manliness is through violence, and I don't completely buy that. That's what he's saying, and he will actually, he actually vociferously denied that in the in an interview that he did in Playboy magazine in 1972. He sort of directly responded to points that Pauline Kael had made about the movie and and kind of shot them down one by one. Mm. Well, you know, it goes back to what Sasha said at the very beginning about it being sort of primal, uh, about uh, bringing up the primal instincts and the violence and everything, because I did feel like that when Dustin Hoffman finally did defeat everyone and he's, 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 his shirt is torn open and he's sweaty and his hair is messed up and he's all, you know, messed up and bloodied and everything, he's never looked sexier. He never has looked better in his entire career than he does at the end of that movie, really. And I don't think he's, he's attractive. He's not, a, he's not in a, what I would call a sexy guy, but he's never looked better. He, he, act, he, looks, he, looks, um, he looks hotter at the, in that scene than he ever did. And I do think that he, that he does gain some sort of... Um, um, balls that he didn't have before by, by being by, by, by being able to defeat those guys, you know. I think he regrets it though. There's, there's oh, a, sure, there's yeah, a, there's well, a look of horror on his yeah. face. I mean, he's, oh, yeah. he's kind of he's kind of adrenalized, but, mm-hmm. but at the same time, he realizes what he's done. And there's that famous, and it's actually a little bit controversial. The scene at the very end, he's driving away from the house with with the with the um, the guy who was who was. Uh, who the they're point? trying to protect? Who, the, yeah, the guy, the guy who, had actually, who, who had accidentally killed the girl. Yeah. And he says that he and the guy says he doesn't know the way home. And Dustin Hoffman kind of sm- gives this ironic smile and says something like, "I don't know the way home either." Oh. And it's and it's you can interpret it. You can interpret his, his expression and his comments in different ways. I kind of interpret it that he's kind of forever changed by his experience and not necessarily in a good way he did what he had to do but he didn't like it and he doesn't feel good about it um and he no longer feels so great about his wife and he's probably not going back to that house that's what i thought about the end too that's why i say that's not a happy ending as far as their relationship goes their their relationship like you say was was much more um doomed from the beginning you can see that she he's with the wrong person 
in, right. in the original. And he's really, although he's better off without her, it's kind of sad to think that he's a, he's he's abandoned her. And she's she's trauma, she's wrecked. You know her she her she'll never be the same at the end of this movie after she's what she's been been through the trauma that she's been put through. And right. he just basically abandons her and drives off. So that is rough. It's rough. You know, it's a rough ending. Whereas in the remake, they kind of um, she sees that uh, James Marsden has become the man that she wanted him to be. I got that, that feeling anyway. Well, they started on a firmer foundation too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They they had there were cracks in their marriage, but they yeah. they still were basically in love. Whereas you didn't yeah. ever quite get the feeling that there was a lot of love between Dustin Hoffman and Susan George. Right. Hmm. Well, it sounds very. And we should say I, that Craig, on his site, Living in Cinema, is going to be doing a series called Page to Screen about um, writing about the book and the film adaptation, right, Craig? I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's going to be a series, but I've done a couple of them, and the most recent one was actually about Drive. I just posted it this afternoon. Oh, we'll cool. Link to it. We'll link to it when I we know. post the podcast. I didn't know you had posted it. Craig, you're so um, non-braggy. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. Hey, you're not stupid, a like, self-publicizing <laughs> douchebag like everybody else's. Look at me, look at me. I tweeted it, I Facebooked it. What else oh, okay. can I do? Well, I, I must not have. You know, I've been away from Twitter all day. So it's like normally I monitor it, but I haven't. If I see it, I would I would have noticed it, but you know I'd I could have it. emailed you and said, "Hey, I did this, and I want yeah. I want your readers to pay attention to it." But that's just I don't know I don't operate that way. I'm I glad. Know. I would have been sad for you if you had continued not to like it because I really loved it a lot, and I would have. It would have just made. I, I'm just. I, it it kind of hurts my feel. Not hurts my feelings, but it, it makes me feel sorry for someone who doesn't enjoy something that I think is really good. Because I want everybody to enjoy movies, especially well, the movies that I enjoy. And I much prefer. Um, I, I actually like being the opposite. I would rather try and convince somebody to like something that they don't than to be the buzzkill that doesn't like something that everybody mm. else likes. That's mm-hmm. kind of how I felt about that movie. Yeah. Um, and it, it, that, that wasn't what motivated me to change my mind. It was, it was purely just a change in understanding. But obviously I liked it well enough the first time to want to see it again. And that was the thing is the first half of it, both times that I saw it, were amazing. But uh-huh. then at a certain point, um, at the point where he agrees to take the job with Standard, it, it started to fall apart to me because I didn't, I didn't even catch the line the first time where Standard is explaining to him that he has to do this, otherwise these bad men who beat me up are going to come back for Irene and Benicio, mm-hmm. oh, and that yeah. was that was totally Gosling's motivation for. Mm-hmm. for yeah, you can involved. see it, you can see it on his face. His face changes at that line. Yeah, his, exactly. His, in his eyes and his expression and so attitude changes. He's not interested before, but then all of a sudden. He he realizes it's something he's got to do, right? And and that's why he slaps Christina Hendricks too. I mean, that's it's mm-hmm. so his. Yeah. We were talking about it earlier, and and the way Craig was talking about it was like the word drive came up as like a double having a double meaning. It's like it's oh, yeah. drive, but it's also his drive. He's driven to protect mm-hmm. her. And when when he did the roundtable, when I inter when we interviewed him, he talked about how. They borrowed a lot of elements from John Hughes movies, like because only in John Hughes movies would someone um, only know somebody for a few minutes and then fall madly in love with them and do anything for them. You know? Right. Yeah. And he, really, I do that all the time. <laughs> That's how I am. Really, I'm not kidding. That's how my life is gone. I'm You're all like, or nothing, baby. <laughs> I mean, he I'm a he recog- love at first sight kind of guy. No, he recognized that. Um, 
he, you know, he recognized that that it was Brian Gosling recognized that it was it was just unrealistic and impossible. You know, mm. so right. He, what? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, it's okay. I wasn't gonna say anything. What what elevated the movie for me from being good to really good was this I it was this was this comparison that I thought of between Drive and Shane the movie Shane um, and Ryan Gosling struck me very much as a Shane type character this this um, this protector guardian angel who swoops into town to save the woman and her kid but in the process of doing so realizes that he's kind of unfit to live in this world that he's protecting and kind of has to ride off into the sunset at the end by himself. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really struck a chord with me, and that's what really made me like it more than what I originally did. That's good, and and it's good, and it's interesting, too, because I don't believe anybody else has ever picked up on that and made that comparison. So that's that's, that's nice. I like that. I'd never thought of it myself. Yeah. I know it's... my only problem with the movie, from it keeps it from being a perfect ten for me, is the music. I was, I was going to bring that up. That's just what I was going to say next, because I know you think it was a little bit too, um, too, too uh, on the nose, as, as yeah. Jeff Wells would say, right? It was right. too, too, too much um, descriptive of what was happening, exactly. as what, of what you were seeing. And I saw it twice, and it was the mm-hmm. same way the second time. I just like was cringing. I was like, oh, no, please don't make it that song. Yeah. And then I remembered that Ryan Gosling said that when he and um, the director were hashing out the story in the car, they were driving around for hours listening to music. And we, I was just saying to Craig that I thought that... Um, that I wonder if they were sort of then married to the idea of using these songs and that it would have been too much in breaking with their original idea to say, to look at it and go, oh, maybe not that there, you know, maybe not, maybe a different song. Mm-hmm. And, you know, compare that to the way Martin Scorsese uses songs, famous, well-known, iconic songs in his movies. And they're never really that on the nose. They're ironic, almost always. He has that gift of making the music ironic to what's happening on screen. Well, see, that's what I, that's how I felt about Drive, though. I felt that there was a there was an almost an irony, and I think I wrote about this because I I looked I I looked for, I wanted to find out about the music too. I liked the music, and I but and I and I and I didn't want to directly argue with you about it because I don't want to. I'm not trying to convince you otherwise that that uh, that you're you know wrong about it or anything like that because you of course you you know how you feel. But I felt like that I, that it almost was um, was intentionally a little bit. Um, Campy or, or or kitschy, you know, that it was that well, no, it was I meant so. to be. Especially I, the fact I that they used that the hero it. song twice. No, I liked that about it. I liked the mm-hmm. the new agey. Quali- because it reminded me a little bit of something like David Lynch would do. I liked like the new that, wave kind of you know neo neo punk kind of thing that it had. I liked that yeah, about yeah. it. Euro trash kind of thing. It had that vibe. Yeah. Well, I, I think it kind of it kind of fit the it kind of fit um, like you were saying Ryan Gosling said they were kind of going for a John Hughes film and I think John Hughes used music in a very similar way and I think that's maybe the what they were riffing off of a little bit. Yeah, Would, wouldn't you say? I would say uh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right on the money. But I just think that in some cases it just it struck me it was, wrong. It felt it weird. Was too much. It just didn't. Yeah, I mean, it just didn't. It didn't. Well, anything that takes you out of the movie and makes you think about what 
about another choice that they might have made is distracting you from what they really want you to be looking at, and so that's not a good thing. I can yeah. see that. I agree with you there. That that if it that if it's if it's that if it seems off enough to make you wish it was different, then maybe it was not the maybe they could have made a better choice. The violence in the movie had that effect on me the first time I saw it because I I didn't understand what was driving uh, Ryan Gosling's character. But once I started to think of him in the Shane terms, then it made perfect sense because especially the elevator scene, um, Irene had to see that he's kind of a monster inside. And and tellingly, that was the last time she actually saw him. Mm -hmm. Oh, it is? Because Because of the violence that he was capable of. I guess it was the last time she laid eyes laid eyes on him, right? Because then the yeah. elevator's door closed. The elevator doors closed, and she that's well. It, that's even before the doors close, he kind of he's kind of looking at her, and he's all bloody and kind of sweaty, and he has this sort of th- almost thrilled look on his face, and mm-hmm. he, he just kind of his head just kind of moves back and kind of moves back and off 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 the frame, basically. And yeah. That's the last time last time she sees him. Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, and I also like that scene because I like how he is surprised by himself. And, and he was surprised to show that side of her, like he'd been able to hide it, you know. Mm-hmm. And it makes it made me wonder about his past, you know, like really who he was to be that. Has he always been killing people? Has he ever lived in the same world? And was he, she... he was awfully good at it. You have to assume that he had some experience with it in the past yeah I, I got the impression and I'm not sure if it was mentioned in the book or not but the, the, he had uh, he had a, he had had martial arts training and stuff like that and so that for his stunt work you know that he had worked with people who knew martial arts and that's where right. he picked up on it yeah and um, the thing that's another thing that surprises me about drive is how it just got absolutely roasted by key critics New York was it Manola Dargis or A.O. Scott that wrote A.O. Scott didn't like it. Um, Glenn Kenny didn't didn't think that much of it. Edelstein was Kenneth cool Turian. on it. Yeah. Um, I can't think of who else. But then there were some others that were really high on it. What surprised Kenneth me Turian. was that it, it, is it got a C minus cinema score, which is yeah. um, a measure of audience reaction. I was surprised that that well, according that to people um, were disappointed. Yeah, according to Phil, who does the box office stuff that I know, he said that people were really upset when um when um Christina Hendricks gets gets slapped and that as soon mm. as that part happens they he said that they just turned off to the movie and they weren't oh. with it anymore after wow. that wow so maybe i don't know see i don't understand that, that cuz she was a bad person you know and he and he had and she was about to fuck everybody over and she she i mean as far as she will she would have been happy if he had been killed so slapping her it seems like a um a, a relatively mild payback for someone who wants to yeah. have you killed. Yeah, at that to point me, in the story, he's completely yeah. mistrustful of her and thinks right. that she's uh-huh. totally double-crossed. And which I, she but had. I know the thing, that she's a, she's a woman, you know, of course, and, and also maybe the fact that we know her from Mad Men, possibly, the fact That's, that we yeah. know and we love her so much from Mad Men. That's another thing, I think, yeah. for sure. I think that they were like, you know... And so that's an interesting casting choice he made. He must have been aware of that in some way, that he was giving us a sympathetic character. And, and to go back a little bit, just to briefly, to, to Straw Dogs, I, I remember I read something that Peckinpah said. He knew that he was going to lose people uh, at the rape scene, and he would probably lose a, a fans that had been that had liked his other movies. He would probably never get them back. But he didn't care about that. He was inter- he was not in- interested in entertaining people. He was interested in the message he wanted to send. Right. And 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 he, he didn't he didn't really care if he lost he lost some of the audience there. 
it must have been in its own way as shocking in 1971 to see straw dogs as it was some of the stuff in, in drive because it was pretty brutal. I've heard people on the site say that they almost walked out, and I'm assuming it was either at the the slapping scene or maybe the the head crushing scene or whatever, you know. Yeah, the head crushing was probably the worst, but it was the most justified, I think, of all the violent scenes. Mm-hmm. The least one was the was the shotgun shooting of a of a of one of the characters. I won't say which one it is for people who haven't mm-hmm. seen it, mm-hmm. but that didn't seem to add anything necessarily to the movie for me. But it didn't mm-hmm. it didn't really detract either. It just seemed kind of unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. Funnily enough, I just violence doesn't really ever bother me in movies. It, it doesn't for me either. It doesn't like offend me or turn me off. But if it's so extreme like that, it takes me out of the movie a lot of times um, because I'm it. I'm thinking about the violence rather than the experience of watching the movie. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it sure. does. I mean, I've, I've always felt that way about torture porn movies, you know, because they do seem like uh, they're there to titillate you mm-hmm. about the violence, and that freaks me out because that's such an American thing, you know. Mm-hmm. That's one thing, though, about this, the, the drive uh, violence is not doesn't make you want to do the same thing. It doesn't want to make you go out and and, and do the same thing. It doesn't incite violence. I don't think. No, it doesn't and, glorify uh, violence either. Not at all. It it, it really, in in it, it, I, that's why I, that's what I like about it is it really shows the consequences of the violence. And but it it it, it took me out of a, the movie just a little bit because I was not expecting it. I didn't expect. Because that, it wasn't in the book. And, well, that's and so. one of the things I love about seeing Drive is that when you watch it, and people hear that, they see those scenes, and everybody starts to like laugh and freak out because they don't expect it, and it's so over the top, you know. Mm-hmm. They don't have to know how to react, and so they well, react. They, yeah, they react the same way they do when they watch a Scorsese movie or a Cronenberg movie, or you know, a, a, even maybe in the day a Peckinpah movie. You just you just can't believe what you're seeing half the time, and mm-hmm. it's funny because it's so over the top, you know. Not funny, funny, but like you laugh to relieve yourself of the tension, maybe I guess. Right, mm-hmm. it's almost an uncomfortable laugh. Yeah, it's, it's just like, whoa, you know. Um, and, and the laugh is sort of an acknowledgement of this filmmaker to me. It's like, you know, when I hear it, it's, it's like a knowing laugh. Wow, that's, you know, that's this director's style. And look at how far he's going with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, some directors really have to give you the money shot. Like it's Straw Dogs, the end scene, you know. Mm-hmm. Like you got to have that money shot, and and straw dogs. It's, it's you mean with like, the bear trap? With mm-hmm. the, yeah, yeah. You know that's another thing. A difference in the in the peck and Paul version. They cut away from that. It was just a they long show, shot, but it's not graphic at all. Right, not not nearly as graphic. And I think I had I don't know whether I read it or maybe I read I heard on the commentary or something that they did do close ups, but but peck and Paul decided to edit to not use the close ups. He didn't want to. He didn't want to. He didn't want to um, put it in your face like that. Yeah. He'd taken enough crap for being a purveyor <laughs> of violence up to that point. He probably didn't want to mess right. with it. Yeah. And I was just thinking that if I start writing about Best Picture, I'm going to have to start stop dissing the King's speech because whenever a movie wins Best Picture, it sort of influences the next year. And I can tell that the King's speech is really influencing the way movies are... Like the movies that are doing really well, like Moneyball and... Um, uh, the Descendants and The Artist, those mm-hmm. are all like post-King's Speech movies. They're all really feel-goody. There's no violence. Oh. The characters oh. are all heroic and, you know, tear-jerkery, and it's a happy story, and it's uplifting. And, you know, they're, they're flawed characters, but they're, mm-hmm. they're not like Drive 
which is more of a, a movie about an anti-hero. And mm-hmm. Drive is so not the movie for people right now. It's Even though it's got a lot of obsessed fans on the internet, it's like 2011 doesn't feel like it's that kind of year where we're ready to just dive into the dark characters. Even well, even with a movie like Shame, which is all about that. Shame is great. It's still like my favorite movie of the year. Mm-hmm. But um, but I'm feeling that, you know, I'm feeling that that tension of, of a happy, uh, not happy, but heroic, straight up and down heroes. You know? More uplifting. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, uplifting. Yeah, well, that, then that's the problem, another problem and that I'm sure a lot of people had with, with The Drive is that it doesn't have the kind of, for an action movie, and a lot of people I'm sure went to it expecting to see an action movie. And they had no reason to expect anything else with a title like that, and with the with the trailers and previews that had been shown, they want they expected it to be like a heist movie of a about a getaway driver or something, right? I or like a fast and five. It's, it's not that at all. It's a European movie. It's a European film, and and a lot of people were probably not expecting that at all. I know the audience in this part of the country where I saw it didn't know what to make of it. There were people that booed at the end of it. So they were expecting more like the Fast and the Furious or something. Exactly, exactly. That's what they were expecting, they and well, they they probably go. never even seen a movie like this in their life. And there's and the C minus cinema score playing out right there. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. They they uh, people uh, didn't know what they were in for. Yeah. And um, e- even for myself, I could have used one more really good chase scene in the movie because he did the ones that he did so well yeah. that. Um, and, and they're so so rarely done that well anymore. They're always mm-hmm. Michael Bay, edit the shit out of them and, and confuse you as much as possible. Um, whereas these were very geographically grounded and they, they weren't over-edited and you had a really strong sense of the geography of the scenes. And, and the danger very, and the risks. Yeah, and the, yeah, the danger. And they were very thrilling to watch, but they were all kind of just teases that were making you think that there was going to be another really good one coming, but it mm-hmm. never really did. And I was, I, I left a little disappointed both times that way. Mm-hmm. It didn't have the rhythm or the formula or the pattern of, of unfolding the story as that, that people expect either. It right. didn't, it didn't hit any of the beats. It didn't hit any of the t- traditional beats that are in a movie like that. Usually not in a movie like that, but the movie that people expected that right. it, it, it didn't fulfill what their expectations. Yeah. That's anyway. I, that's why the cinema score doesn't surprise me. It, it only surprised me because all I heard going into it was how excited everybody was, and everybody who had seen it loved it. And I keep forgetting that the internet is a bubble. Exactly. And, and it's not a reflection of. You have to what, remember that what everybody thinks. It's so hard to remember. It's so hard to remember that that the, the people that we talked to on Twitter and stuff, and the, you know. I know, like, for instance, I mean, I'm sure that not a single Republican follows, follows me on Twitter. I'm sure that <laughs> by now I've driven every single Republican away, and they've, they've unfollowed me. And so the only people who follow me and the only people that I listen to are people who think like I do. Right. And that's, that's the bubble that we're in. But, yeah. I mean, you know, Drive did win Best Director at Cannes, so it's not like it's, um, you know, it's the kind of thing the Europeans and everybody unanimously loved it in Cannes, I can tell you yeah. that. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure part of what they liked about it is they knew that he, that if it had been given to an American director, they would have turned it into a traditional American action film. And so what they what they see and what they love about it, possibly some of them, is the fact that they have sent one of their um, art house directors, one of their European art house directors, to America, and he's actually gotten gotten away with making an art house movie. 
Yeah. He'd actually made, gotten away with turning an action script, an action story, into an art house film. Yeah, and they that makes it that. even juicier that he's tweaking yeah. Yeah, typically American genre, just yeah. like Melville or any of those guys. And oh, yeah. the, the uh-huh. unfortunate thing is the, um, the marketing department has to sell the movie, and it's Ryan Gosling. It's a big star, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And so, they have to make money, so they have to lie about what it is. Right. <laughs> it's just funny, isn't it? Like, you forget that selling a movie to the American public is hard. You know, it's not easy to, to dumb. You have to really dumb it down. That's mm-hmm. why I don't watch trailers a lot. I know people make fun of me, like I'm some kind of weird purist because I try to generally avoid trailers. It has less to do with spoilers and stuff like that than it does with the fact that trailers basically lie. They're oh, yeah. al- almost always trying to sell the movie to the five stupidest people in the audience. And <laughs> maybe I'm kidding myself, but I like to think I'm not that guy. So th- these trailers are not aimed at me. So I'm better off just not really paying attention to them. <laughs> That's right. true. I know what you mean. I only look at them if they're artfully done, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like a Cohen trailer is hard to pass up. Uh, Steven Soderbergh trailer is hard to pass up. Trailers from, or like somebody from David, like David Fincher, who obviously has his finger on every little tiny detail yeah. about his movies. Those those are fine, um, and they can be a part of the process of enjoying the movie. Or like I remember. Um, when uh, Sofia Coppola's tra- uh, teaser trailer came out for Marie Antoinette, I was totally sold on it from that day forward, and I ended up really liking the movie, which a lot of people hated it, but um, yeah. it, it was the trailer that really put it over for me. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. Um, can we just say that um, there are so few directors out there working like uh, Fincher? The thing oh I God. love about him yeah. is his fucking shit is tight as a drum. I mean, it's like <laughs> he doesn't, he's not sloppy at all. And so many of these directors, you know, they, they end up kind of accidentally making good movies. A little bit here, a little bit there. Things fall out, spill over. But with Fincher, everything is exact, you know? And I'm so looking forward to that, to being, sitting down and being in the hands of somebody like so in control as that. Right. You know? It's like Kubrick was that way. You don't get that very often. Kubrick and Hitchcock. Kubrick. There's something in every shot. You can you can just watch uh, three seconds of any shot, and you're and 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 it, it hits a part of your brain that other directors cannot touch. It 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 it, 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 it does something in your between your retina and your brain that other directors don't do. It's something in the framing or I just don't know, the lighting of the composition or what. But it, it's 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 a it's a, it's a magical thing. Spielberg is the same way, and it's all of that. It's the sense yeah. that they're in complete control, and that all you have to do is just sit back, and they're going to take you on this ride where every detail has been thought out ahead of time. You're not going to yeah. know what's going to happen, but mm-hmm. they do, and they're in charge, and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, and Hitchcock more I would compare with Fincher, only because Hitchcock's movies are tight as a drum. Like they are, right. every single shot is thought mm-hmm. out. By him, you could say the same about Scorsese in a way, but Scorsese is such a collaborator with Thelma. Uh, I think so. That's the part. That's the thing. That's the difference is the co- between a collaboration and and a really true auteur where the who creates the movie entirely in his head before it's even on screen, yeah. before even a, or a, a single frame is shot. It's all in his head, and right. he and the, and the job is just to get people to help him get get it on get it on screen. I know, and people wonder why I'm so amazed with, but as every year goes by and I look at all these movies that come out and I wait for a David Fincher movie and I see even his trailer and I think, God, man, 
There are so few directors who have that kind of control and that mm -hmm. mastery of, of the frame the way he does. You just look at that dragon tattoo trailer. Every shot is mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, even if his story is lacking or wanting in any way, the, he, he more than makes up for it with the visuals. <laughs> I mean, if you're the uh -huh. kind of person that um, can get off on that sort of thing, you know, just a purely visual movie... Absolutely. Where yeah. you don't care so much, and the story doesn't have to be complete, like The Shining. Uh-huh. Right. It's just a Stephen King popular, really. It's just a yeah. junky kind of ghost story and, kind and of thing. And like Jack Nicholson is stoned all the way through. <laughs> right. And you know you can you know that because when they, they, when someone else does a remake of the same material, it doesn't have it. It doesn't doesn't have anything like what the what what the what the masters can do with it. I, that's why it, someone on the site, some reader, I don't know who, and I wouldn't name them if I did, but they said. It doesn't matter how talented you are, or how, how how talented your collaborators are, or how much style you've got. If the source material is junk, then your movie's going to be junk. That is so not true. That is so not true. It's so you can not take true, you can take any kind of junk, pulpy, crap little story, and a great director can turn it into a masterpiece. Yeah, especially if that director is working from a visual mm -hmm. mode, like Kubrick, who yeah. you know. And and believe All, me, there are like a handful of them. You can count them on your hands, the directors mm -hmm. who are this way. All they need is the basic skeleton to hang their their art on, really. They just need yeah. a hook to and hang then, their art on. And honestly, there are fewer and fewer of them as the yeah. years go by. Yeah. And But Fincher is one. Fincher's old school. He's like Scorsese, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. He's up in that level to me, visually, you know. Mm -hmm. We were talking on Twitter, uh, you... you you, you noticed when something you said about something about uh, uh, that Reznor and and uh, Fincher are such a great collaborators and mm -hmm. and and we were talking we hope they work together again and again and again and and I was thinking think of the movies that Hitchcock was doing when he was 50 years old that were already masterpieces like uh, Strangers in a Train and Notorious and then what he was doing when he was 60 years, years old. With with Vertigo and and Psycho, right. think what Fincher's going to be doing when he's sixty. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. If he's already doing this now when he's forty-five and fifty years old, what is what lies ahead of him? Oh my gosh, yeah. we're in such. As long as he mood. continues to grow, as long as he doesn't buy into the notion that Fight Club was his best movie, like mm. a lot of Fincher fans yeah. do, it's like it never got better than Fight Club. You know, and they're not letting him grow out of that. And people say right. the same thing about Wes Anderson and Rushmore, and it's a load yeah, of shit. I know. Same thing with Wes Anderson. Same thing with um, M. Night Sh Shyamalan and whatever. I'm not that he's a great director or anything, but just that you know, they people get fixated on these early great movies, and they do not let the director grow out of that. And Fincher, if he keeps going and growing and doesn't buy into the publicity about who he is, he'll be a great director. He's already a great director, but I mean, he'll be like mm. Hitchcock. He'll be lifelong. Right. I mean, I, that, that's what I say. As great as his movies are, I think that in the next 10 years, we're going to see things that are just absolutely going to be um, some of the great pieces of cinema ever. You know, I'm just hoping. I'm hoping. I mean, he, he, he has the potential, I think, to, to do what Hitchcock did when he was in the 60s. And, um, and I think that he's proving that he doesn't want, he's, he's not going to be trapped into what people expect. Just look at the variety of movies that he's made. Right. You know, to go from Benjamin Button to... From to Zodiac to uh, Social Network, they couldn't be more different. Those movies just absolutely couldn't be more different. He is going back with Dragon Tattoo to to a, like a thriller mode, which everybody's really happy about, and I do feel like is really in his wheelhouse. But uh, it's it's also different from anything he's ever done. I think. Yeah. 
You've been listening to Three Way Movie Gasm with Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com, Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com. We will be back next time with another podcast. Thanks for listening. that hover out into the world.